reading a couple of verses from Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Father, we're so grateful to you that you have redeemed us. And Lord, we live in a land right now that is greatly in need of redemption. From the east, from the west, from the north and the south, we pray your spirit will work and will draw men and women to yourself, that we who are your children will radiate the glory of Christ into our ever-darkening land and culture. And Father, I pray that in these latter days you might bring a mighty revival. Father, that there might yet be uh, a sending forth to the nations that every tribe and every tongue might hear. We're so thankful for your faithfulness to us individually. And Lord, I thank you for these men and women and for what you're doing in each of their lives. And Father, I pray that as we focus this morning, you'll grant to us insight and understanding from your word, truths that'll help us in walking more faithfully with you and in more clearly <clears throat> reflecting the glory of Christ uh, into the hearts and lives of those around us. Lord, I pray you will meet each need this morning. Wherever your, your word is being proclaimed, we trust you to empower it. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the eighth chapter of 1 Samuel, beginning at verse 10 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equip his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyard and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Well, maybe you remember that two weeks ago, that's the passage we read and began to look at it. Samuel heard from the Lord. And because Samuel heard from the Lord, he was emboldened to speak to the people. And so he gathered the leaders and he spoke to them the message that we read here. He said to them that the cost of kingship will be very high. He's speaking, of course, to the elders of Israel that have come. You remember the previous Sunday that uh, the elders of Israel came to him because his two sons, uh, Joel and Abijah, who were uh, like deputy judges down in Beersheba, were not 
administering justice as they ought. They were perverting justice. And so they came and, and they said, you know, your sons are not going to follow in your steps and you're going to die someday, so we want a king. So they've asked Samuel for a king. And Samuel has basically responded as God has empowered him to here. He says, the cost will be very high and someday you will regret this demand that you are making this day. Samuel gave specific warnings. And I think these specific warnings came not only from his own knowledge of how kings functioned in the surrounding nations. After all, they were surrounded by the Egyptians in the south and the Syrians in the north and the Phoenicians on the coast and, and the Philistines and, and the, uh, the Ammonites and the Edomites. All these different people surrounded them. They all had kings. Israel was the only country that functioned under this kind of a shofat where God is king, a theocracy. And so with, with God's inspiration, he was able to explain to them what this really, really would mean. He said, first of all, your young men and your young women are going to be drafted into the service of the king. You think they're going to grow up and follow in your footsteps? You think they are going to take over your business or your fields? <laughs> no, they're going to be drafted into the army. They're going to be drafted into the armory business. Uh, they're going to be drafted into cooking and performing all the services for the royal household and for the national <laughs> government. Secondly, he said, your lands are going to be confiscated by the king. The best of your lands will be confiscated because he's going to give them to his, well, let's put it in medieval terms, his dukes and his counts and his viscounts and this, this hierarchy that he's going to create under the king. The king is not going to see, serve as just a single individual up here. Uh, he's going to create a hierarchy of leadership and this burden is going to rest on your shoulders and on, as a result of that taxes are going to be high taxes are going to be raised and he gave actually uh, rather mild taxes there 10% uh, of this and 10% of that of course we have to remember that Israel the Israelites were already paying taxes into the temple so this is another tax sort of like what we face with federal and national I suppose you could say and of course eventually it would become very very oppressive and then Samuel summed it all up by saying the day will come when you will cry out because of the oppression and God will not listen to you because he has warned you. He has explained to you what he wanted and you are refusing to listen to him. He said, Im implied in fact, that as you must endure the presence of the Canaanites in your land, because you refuse to trust God to drive them out, so you will have to endure this government which you insist on establishing against God's clear word. I think Samuel thought that maybe he could dissuade them, that these elders would be wise enough to hear the, the words that he was saying and that these elders would say, ah, yeah, you're right. We, we don't really want to face that kind of a situation. Therefore, maybe we should put off this idea of choosing a king. But that, of course, is not what happened because as we read in the passage, we read the word in verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. People refused to listen to the voice of the man that they knew to be God's prophet, Shofat, Nabi, everything that a person could be. He was a priest, he was a prophet, and he was the judge of Israel, all wrapped into one. And they refused to listen to this one whom they had known always spoke the truth as a prophet. It's sort of like the congregation that listens to the pastor and knows he's speaking the truth, but basically jettisons everything he says. We were refused to do this. Samuel was certainly disappointed that they persisted in their demands. They did not wish 
to be a peculiar people. They did not wish to be odd, different from the surrounding nations. They wanted to be like all of the surrounding peoples. They wanted to blend into the world. They didn't want to stand out. But God had called them to stand out. He had chosen them as a people. He said earlier, I did not choose you because you were a great and mighty nation. I chose you because you were the least among the nations, that I might glorify myself in you and present the truth to the world. But they refused. And I, I believe that God's call upon Israel was at least parallel to God's call upon the church. And let me read that well-known passage from First uh, Peter which kind of blends the two ideas of Old and, and New Testament uh, truth relative to who we are to be in the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Israel was a chosen race. You and I, as spiritual Israel, are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. Now, of course, not everybody in Israel was a priest, but the nation, in effect, was priest to the world. And you and I are priests in a sense that we bring the glory of the light of the gospel into a world that does not know Christ. A holy nation, a set-apart people, that's what it means, a set-apart people. Israel was set apart. The church is set apart. A people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why, why is the church a separate entity? Why, why is it a holy people? Because it's to proclaim the excellencies of God into this dark world. And of course, Satan is doing a very, very good job of blending the church into the world today. So that in, in many denominations and in many individual churches, there's no difference between the church and the world. For you, once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In that, th those two verses apply as much to Israel as they do to the church, as much to the church as they did to Israel. Israel was not a people. Jacob and his clan went down to Egypt, 70 people, big deal. They came out, of course, a multitude, a and God separated them to be his people. And, and you and I individually join the church of Jesus Christ. We are we're nobody. We are without mercy before we are born again and then we become part of God's chosen people. We come, as it were, out of Egypt into the promised land. And so the Israelites refused to accept that challenge, to accept that position, to accept that calling. We want to be like the surrounding peoples. We want our courts to be operated not by a, a, a traveling shofat, but by a God-appointed court system. Huh. We don't want a militia that just comes to gather all of it once like a volunteer fire department to deal with the issue. We want a standing army with officers that are paid by the government to go out and fight our battles for us. This is what they wanted. So God said, you may have it. Samuel, though, was very discouraged frustrated, perplexed. I think it was even angry. And what did he do? Did he walk down the, the mountain away from the people just yelling and screaming how stupid they were? No, he went to the Lord in prayer. Went to the Lord in prayer. In verse 21 of the passage, uh, we read that Samuel repeated all these things in the Lord's hearing. Now, if somebody were to read a verse like that, 
and not understand who God is or have read the rest of Scripture, they would say, well, you know, he had to go tell God, otherwise God wouldn't know. <laughs> right. God not only knew every word that had been spoken, he knew every thought behind every word that had been spoken. In fact, he knew the thought before it was ever thought. So why was it important? For Samuel to go into the Lord's presence and rehearse it all over again what was the point. I mean, we could argue that prayer has no meaning because God already knows it all. You know, God says, I know what you have need of before you even ask, so why bother asking? Well, I think it's because, as we have even read in the First Peter passage and as so many of the scriptures talk about, the kingdom of God is participatory. <laughs> you and I have a role to play. We're not just a bunch of people God gathered together to save and we're just kind of banging around here until it's time to go to heaven. We, we have a role to play in God's eternal kingdom. We're like cogs in the machinery, and the machinery doesn't function unless all the cogs are working the way they ought to be working. I think there are at least two reasons why it was important for Samuel to go and, and express his feelings to the Lord as he did. First of all, it served as a catharsis for Samuel. <laughs> he could get it off his chest, as it were. He could go in before the Lord and say it like it was. Tell the Lord what he felt. And I, I've mentioned this before, and I think you're all well aware of this, that God is not offended by what's on your heart. Tell him. <laughs> you might as well speak it out loud to him in prayer because he already knows what's in your mind and your heart. And it serves as a catharsis. He poured out his pain, his frustration, his anger before God. Better place to do it than on somebody human. And secondly, of course, it helped to align Samuel with the mind of the Lord. As long as prayer is not just you talking to God all the time, but also involves listening. What is it God is saying to you, to me, as we pray? Which, of course, requires that we be doing some scripture study at the same time that we're praying. Or at least have memorized some scripture that he can speak to us through. So I think the same truths concerning the prayer that Samuel prayed applies to us today. That's one of the things I like about Scripture is that the truths of Genesis are the truths of Revelation because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's immutable. And, 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 and the heart and the love and the mercy that he had for Adam and Eve is the heart and the love and the mercy that he has for us. It is unchanged. It's his character. It's his nature. Since the children, since we are the children of God, uh, we're here to participate in the kingdom. And, and we can do this by seeking God in prayer, carrying the needs, our needs, others' needs, the needs of our nation, the needs of our kingdom to the Lord, not because he doesn't know them, but because it helps us to pour it out. It helps us, even if you heard the, the, the sermon the, this morning, uh, praying for somebody changes you towards them. You can't have the same attitude towards somebody, especially if it's negative, if you've seriously prayed with them or for them or both. It changes you as well as changes them. And so as we pray, it changes us in our attitude towards those who, who may even be, in, in, in Samuel's case, frustrating him, angering him because they were so foolish. Gave him some compassion, I think. True prayer enables us to cast our burdens on the Lord and to become vulnerable to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. People who don't pray are cast in iron. They're, they're, they're unworkable. They're unchangeable. 
Prayer is the way by which the Spirit of God gets down and, and works in us as well as out from us. So prayer is absolutely a vital thing that should occur in our lives personally, in our family situation, and corporately. Notice how this prayer impacted Samuel. This time, when the Lord said to him, he'd already told Samuel, he said, Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me in requesting a king, so give them a king. <laughs> but Samuel, the word, the word of the Lord there kind of fell on Samuel's deaf ears, and he didn't want to do it. But now, when the Lord says, listen to the request of the elders and appoint them a king, Samuel was able to accept what he considered to be unacceptable. And he was able to carry out God's command. I think before this encounter with the Lord, he, he simply would not have been able to do it. You guys are absolute nincompoops. There is no way that a king is right for you. I will not give you a king. But now the Lord says, give them a king. And so he says to them, okay, I'm going to give you a king. Go every man to his city. And that's the way the chapter ends, the last six words of the chapter. Go every man to his city. Is that all that Samuel said? I think those words are an abbreviation of what he said. I think he made a fuller statement, and I'm, I'm sort of putting words in Samuel's mouth here, but I think they're reasonable. I think he said something like, I have sought the Lord concerning your request, and in spite of the fact that he has clearly warned you against insisting upon a king, he has instructed me to anoint a king over you. Now go every man to his city while I seek the Lord's direction in selecting the man that is his choice to rule over you. And so they left. They went home, anticipating that Samuel will follow through and will give them, will anoint the king that they so desperately wanted. And I think many of them thought, who will it be? Who will it be? What is fascinating about it as we go into the next chapter, which we'll do in a moment here, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, of the old story called Jude the Obscure, <laughs> but God picked Saul the Obscure to be king over uh, Israel. Now, what is, what is really fascinating further about this is that in his foreknowledge, God knew that Israel would one day reject him as king over them and demand that a human king be picked. Therefore, in his mercy, and in his foreknowledge, God had already given to Moses clear directions as to the selection and the function of a king in Israel. Now think about this for a minute. God had said to Israel, you will not have a king. I will be your king. This is how it's going to work. But God had already known they won't accept that in the long run. And so he made provision for that. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. And here's a fascinating passage. You have to remember, this passage was written by Moses. Moses was the leader in Israel. Moses was replaced by Joshua. Joshua was replaced by a whole series of Shaphats. Israel had no king and no plan for a king. And yet God, through Moses, wrote these words. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. We talk about prophecy. 
you know, th these words were written 400 years or approximately before the event we're reading about, three to 400 years. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from your own countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way. Now, of course, part of what he's saying is here, the purpose of the king is not to build up this gigantic military force so that he can uh, become a tyrant and rule over you and, and uh, become aggressive against other nations, because that's not the purpose of Israel. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. <laughs> the king in Israel was to hand copy the law so he could never say, though I didn't know it said that, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. God had made provision for the selection of a king, but he had already told Israel, you do not need a king other than I. But he knew they would insist. And so he said, okay, this is what your king should be. This is how he should live. He should be an example. He should be almost a priest in his attitude towards the people and in his function. And he was not to live like the kings of other nations. You've, you've heard it said so often, the, the phrase that uh, the British scholar stated that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It becomes almost a trite statement, but it's true. It's true because we see it through the course of history. As soon as a person gets great power, they lust for more power. It's just imitating Satan. Satan had great power. He wanted more power. He wanted to be like the most high. And so it is down through the pages of history. Uh, when you have your Attila the Hun, your Genghis Khan, uh, you're Louis XIV, whoever it might be. The power they have is not enough. They want more power. It's one of the reasons why our bureaucracies uh, never shrink but always grow. Because a bureaucrat always wants more power and more authority because the only way to get a better job is to create a bigger hierarchy so that you can be kicked up another level when you reach the top. As we shall see, it does not take long for the kings of Israel to become as corrupt and power-seeking as the pagan kings that surround them. So let's read on now in the ninth chapter, beginning at uh, verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. 
So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants, and arise and go search for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalashah, but he did, they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, and they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us return, lest my father cease to be concerned about the donkeys and become anxious for us. And he, this is the servant, said to him, Behold, now there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Now notice the little parenthetical statement here. It's very unusual. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let us go up to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. This first verse of the uh, chapter is necessary in order to establish the credentials of Saul. Now, what is interesting is that you have four of Kish's immediate ancestors named. None is mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, which means that he came from really an undistinguished family. Two other items of information are stated. We're told that Kish was a Benjamite. Now, that should cause flags to wave to start with. And then it said that he is a man of valor. Well, the tribe of Benjamin was at that time the smallest tribe in Israel. You may remember the story, the horrible story we read uh, a few months back in the 20th and the 21st chapters of Judges, where the Levite took his concubine and she was maltreated, so she died, and so he chopped her up and sent her to all the tribes, and a big civil war broke out. It was a pretty horrible story. Well, the people involved was the tribe of Benjamin, was this tribe that was involved in that heinous and immoral behavior that they defended, which occurred at Gibeah. Now, all the Benjamites didn't take part in, but they defended these people there in Gibeah. And the resulting civil war, you may remember, reduced the tribe of Benjamin to just 600 men. That was all that was left. The whole tribe was massacred except for 600 men. Thus, Benjamin was weak in numbers and was not particularly held in high esteem by the rest of Israel. Is this not like God? As God did over and over again, he chose somebody weak and lowly. Oh, yes, he was handsome and he was tall, but he was weak and lowly, undistinguished from a, the weakest tribe. Uh, you know, no family of great distinction, even though his father is called a man of valor here. But God chooses this man. Why? Because in him he can demonstrate his strength. As we know in Scripture, it is through weakness that God's strength is demonstrated. And, and that is why today we, we find it so difficult, not just today, but throughout history, for people who are famous, people who are good at what they do, we, they often find it really hard to submit to God. As I, as I mentioned to you before, we have a family member who, who said, 
I don't need God because I earned everything I have. Kish was described as a mighty man of valor. The word there, which is translated valor, is usually translated in a military sense. In fact, the same word is usually translated army. But it is also sometimes translated as wealth. And so probably the terms wealth and valor both applied to Kish. I, I don't think he was a leading man, but he was at least a man who was not a peasant. And so Saul came out of a family that was what we might call, I suppose, upper middle class maybe um, at that particular time. Of Kish's son Saul, we're told specifically that he was the tallest man in Israel and that he was the most handsome man in all Israel. Now, I don't know who made that determination. You know, the height can be measured, uh, but of course, handsomeness is more qualitative than quantitative, I think. And, but if it's in God's word, then it must be true. Whether Sam, Saul made that determination or God inspired him specifically to make that determination, he was obviously a very, very attractive person physically. And so what we have here is a man who is truly regal in his appearance. He looks like a king. I, I don't know if you uh, remember the older movies. There, there were some guys who played cowboys who were, who were little... Pardon me, I, I don't mean any uh, insult by this, but who were, what, vertically challenged <laughs> and were kind of skinny and you didn't really think of them as real cowboys. And then there was the Duke, you know. <laughs> John Wayne looked like a cowboy, like our stereotypical cowboy. And so if we were to say, choose your favorite cowboy, we might choose John Wayne over, you know, somebody else. So I think, uh, what was his name? Audie Murphy even played a cowboy in some movies. He was kind of a little guy, you know, so of course he was a hero. He really did earn a Congressional Medal of Honor, whereas John Wayne never was in war. So it's, it isn't always the way it looks. And that's, of course, exactly the point uh, that we're going to see as we go into this passage. Saul looked like a king. He was tall, he was strong, he was handsome. He was still relatively young. But appearances aside, the first thing we discover about Saul is he is sent out to find some lost donkeys. That's a non-regal mission. <laughs> That's not exactly a royal activity. I'm going out to look for my lost asses, you know. <laughs> Ronald Youngblood, in his uh, commentary on 1 Samuel, uh, we find these words in his writings. He says, the Hebrew root of the name Saul uh, means asked, and the implication is asked of God, but it means asked. Though God actually appointed Saul, Saul did not in the final analysis represent God's choice, but the people's choice. The Israelites wanted one who was grand in appearance and in whom they could rejoice in fleshly pride. So God picked for them the man who in all Israel came the nearest to fulfilling their idea of what a king should be. So how did God deal with Israel? He said, I will give them the king they want. I will choose the king they want, the one they will be satisfied with, the one they can look up to and say he really looks like a king. Well, the accuracy of this commentary seems to be supported uh, in the word of God later on when Samuel, many, many years later, was sent by God to the house of Jesse to appoint a successor. 
And even though this is jumping ahead, we'll get to uh, David in a few weeks or months here. <laughs> Let me read from the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, verses 6 and 7. Then it came about when they entered, this, these are Jesse's sons, that he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab apparently was tall and handsome. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Remember what happened before. <laughs> For God sees not as a man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Just a really important concept for us to always remember. The Lord looks in the heart and not on the outside. You know, just, just think about without, you know, pointing out anybody that might offend somebody, uh, j just think down through your own experiences with, let's just say, television preachers. Sometimes the television preachers that are most suave and handsome turn out to be the television preachers who are obviously not very close to God because of what happens to them and what they get themselves into. And sometimes the one who, who doesn't look like the, what our preset idea of a preacher ought to be turns out to be the effective person of God. And that is exactly, of course, what the Lord is saying here. Certainly Israel would have been better off if they had chosen or if God had chosen for them the person he knew would be the best for them. But this is all part of a lesson he's trying to teach Israel. <coughs> Interestingly, another Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, a Saul known as Saul of Tarsus, in a message that he delivered when he was in Pisidia on his first missionary journey at the city of Antioch, he said, they asked, they asked for a king. And again, what is the meaning of the name Saul? Asked. They asked for a king, and God gave them asked Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Thus, in the ninth chapter of 1 Samuel, we seem to have an example of God's permissive will as distinguished from his sovereign will. Of course, God's permissive will is integrated into his sovereign will in that he gave Israel what they wanted, yes, but he gave Israel what they wanted with a purpose on his own, and that was to teach Israel that his choice should be their choice because they will make a wrong choice if they don't depend on him. God sometimes lets us have what we want, hoping that, not, I don't know if we can use the word hope with God, but, but uh, knowing, let's say, that it may bring us to the place of realizing that we should seek his kingdom first and let him add those things to us rather than our seeking our own will and hopefully somehow fitting it in to the will of God. In the third verse, we read that with one of his father's servants, Saul set out on the frustrating task of trying to corral some wandering donkeys. In this particular passage, we discover how God could use or may use what seems to be needless, wasteful circumstances in order to bring about a divine appointment. We could say, but if somebody had been watching those donkeys better, they wouldn't be lost. So who's the dummy who didn't watch the donkeys? Maybe we could say, who's the donkey who didn't watch the donkeys, right? <laughs> but this pursuit of lost donkeys is what brought 
Saul to the place where he sought Samuel. Because you see, Samuel didn't know whom God had chosen to anoint over Israel, and certainly Saul had no thoughts of grandeur at this time. Sometimes you and I may be pitched into frustrating and seemingly pointless, wasteful, useless circumstances due to no fault of our own, and we get frustrated and perplexed and angry. Might it not be that God is using these circumstances that came upon us that we seem we see as useless and wasteful because he has a divine lesson to teach us or a divine appointment for us? It was true for Saul. It doesn't say that, that oh, I got to go out and look for a bunch of donkeys. The towns or the regions that are named in verses four and five of this uh, passage are of unknown location. Here's the tribe of Benjamin, located right here in the central part of Israel, directly north of Jerusalem, okay? The tribal borders are, are described for us in Joshua, and because of the fact that many of the locations described in Joshua are of uncertain uh, existence, I mean, they existed, but we don't know where they are, were, uh, some of the borders are not all that distinct, and apparently the borders fluctuated a little bit from time to time. But uh, Jerusalem is still not an Israelite city. It belongs to the Jebusites. It's, it's not in Israelite possession. Gibeah here is the city where the, that terrible, heinous event occurred, which resulted in the destruction of the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul is from Gibeah, later, of course, in time. Ramah is actually located right about up there. They have another Ramah over here, but the Ramah of Samuel was right about there. In, in not too far away from Gibeah. And here, of course, is Gilgal, which will play an important role in this uh, passage because it was one of the cities that Samuel visited. Samuel made a kind of a circuit uh, where he went to Bethel and he went to uh, Gilgal as well as Ramah, and he made his little uh, circuit in, in this area right in here. And his sons were clear on down here at Beersheba. Obviously, this part of the country had been left out of the... Uh, um, judgeship because Samuel was, didn't travel all through the land. And of course, we have nothing about the north here at, at this time. Nothing is mentioned about the north. Now, these borders, which are shown in this map, are the borders of Saul's kingdom. So when Saul became king in Israel, he incorporated all of the 12 tribes from Beersheba to Dan in the north. But the whole coast was out of his hands because the Phoenicians were up here and the Philistines were down here. And of course, the Syrians were up here, and the Ammonites, and the Moabites, and the Edomites were down here, and the Amalekites, and the Egyptians over here. So Israel was sandwiched in, and much smaller country even than it is today. I mean, today it's a small country, but then it was even smaller. And so Samuel and, and uh, Saul are, are functioning here right in the middle of the country. And as we look at the events, when Saul, for example, goes out chasing after his donkeys, and then... Samuel finally anoints him and, and tells him to go here and go there and have these various encounters which will confirm what has happened to him. All of those events trans transpire right in this small area, right in here, right, right, in, right in the center there, uh, around Jerusalem but not including Jerusalem because it was not part of the Israelite uh, state at that time. And of course, how, what will you make a capital? What would you make a capital in a kingdom which has 12 tribes? That was the blessing of Jerusalem not belonging to Israel. I mean, God turned an evil into good. Jerusalem should have belonged to Israel because the Canaanites should all have been removed. That was God's command, but they didn't do it. So God converted the fact that uh, Jerusalem had not been captured 
in allowing David to capture that city and making therefore a new city the capital so nobody could be jealous that their city wasn't capital while somebody else's city was. It was a city that didn't belong to them. It's sort of like today, Brazil Brazi builds Brasilia in the interior for more reasons than just not, you know, not jealousy between cities. And, and Pakistan builds Islamabad way up in the north and moves out of Karachi. L a lot of these things are similar in some ways. But uh, this will be very important uh, for establishing the David Davidic kingship, which we will eventually uh, get to, Lord willing. The way things are going, you may come back before we get much further, <laughs> hopefully. And then you'll get the real story. I'm looking forward to that great eternal video <laughs> that God's going to run by. Ah, Adam and Eve in the garden and all the way through. Of course, maybe we'll be tired of it and won't want to look at it. <laughs> no, I, I think we will. I think we will. Well, I think we better stop there and take some time to pray here before we run out of time.